0: The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola Hi there and welcome to a special long-form episode of The Numinous Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'd like to share with you a keynote speech I recently gave at the Women's Health and Fitness Summit presented by BellyFit International. This is a recording from September 2016 of a talk I gave called Learning to See in the Dark, Reclaiming Our Power, Transforming Our World. I gave this talk to a few hundred women and I wanted to reach deep into our subconscious ancestral knowledge to bring forth a vision that has been almost all but forgotten, the lessons of the dark woman archetype. This talk is about recovering our gifts of collective and cultural healing and reclaiming a forgotten sacred inheritance as women. It's long, it's dense, it's emotional at times, and there's a lot of swearing. But I need you to know that I really bled for this speech. The dark woman energy I seemed to be channeling in order to write it most certainly wreaked havoc with my life. I was telling a girlfriend it was almost like playing with a Ouija board, like I would write something and the next day it would happen to me. But even still, despite all of that, god damn if it wasn't satisfying. I've listened to this speech a few times since I gave it because I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but... When I give a presentation, I usually just blank out. I don't know. I channel something else. I really can't remember anything that happened afterwards. So I've listened to this speech a few times, and even I keep hollering in my mind, speak, dark woman, speak. It's so satisfying. What I would like to say, though, before you listen to this speech is, I'd invite you to listen to it with a friend Or send it to a friend afterwards so you can talk about it. I've had letters and emails and Facebook messages and people literally stop me on the street and say it's still kind of blowing their mind and has rattled them a little bit. So there's no need to go this alone. And uh, of course, if you would ever like to contact me, you can always go to carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And you'll see that on my Work With Me page, if you wanted to book an appointment, there's a new appointment um, uh, request form. And in that, you could just send me a message through that form. So without further ado, here is my keynote speech, Learning to See in the Dark. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking our hosts, the people of Lekwungen territory, the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations, on whose land we live and grow and work and play together. Hi, It's been said that there are three lines of ancestry. Your bloodline, your milk line, and your storyline. So, here's my story of uh, my bloodline. So, I'm Carmen Spaniola. I'm a fifth generation settler of Scottish descent. And the last name, Spaniola, is a made up name. I invented it. At the time of my daughter's birth, her father and I were no longer a couple. And so, when she was born, I legally gave the two of us a new last name so that whenever she heard it, she would hear her father's and her mother's lineage echo back to her. Her father's family comes from southern Italy, and I come from myself. Or more accurately, I come from a long line of women whose last names mean less to me than their first. And even more accurately, I come from a family of my own creation and a people of my own gathering who believe that your actions and your contributions mean more than your name or your status. And while I'm on the topic of myself, I'm a registered clinical hypnotherapist, and I'm also trained as a wilderness guide. So essentially, I lead people through journeys, both through the inner and the outer landscape. And now my milk line. A milk line is made up of the People and ideas that have nurtured you and shaped your character and by speaking their names I call these women into our collective consciousness and I summon forth the power of their ideas I invite their radical courage and the grace of their presence to be with me and dwell among us here. I stand here a student and a devotee in the lineage of author and Jungian psychoanalyst Jean shinoda Bolin, eco-feminist and co-founder of the U.S. Green Party, Charlene Spretmack, astrologers and mythologists, Dimitra George and Carolyn Casey, midwifery activists, Elizabeth Davis and Carol Leonard, anthropologist, Peggy Reeves-Sandy, and finally, archeologist, ethnologist, and linguist, Maria de Blutas. And now to the storyline. Today, I'd like to share my perspective on the dark woman archetype in our personal and collective unconscious and how we can reclaim her gifts for the betterment of our own lives and the greater good. But it's important for me to establish a framework of understanding before we move forward because for the next hour, sometimes I'm going to talk about aspects of femaleness like menzies and birth, but don't take that in an essentialist way, because I am not locking women's power to our biology, not at all. Of course, we're more than our biology, but what I'm talking about is the metaphor of woman as Earth, as this primary image in the human imagination. So when I say woman, just, Count yourself in if you feel it. It doesn't matter what you have going on in your biology. But I'd also like to point out that the dark woman archetype and the related dark moon phenomenon that I'm going to be referencing is not exclusively the domain of women. The phases of the moon themselves are not gendered, and men are very much affected by the cycles of the moon. So although I'm centering the female experience, it by no means excludes the male experience. And a final note, I adhere to the philosophy that we ought to think like a wise woman, but speak in the voice of the people. And my people say, fuck. (laughs) So sometimes she's called the dark woman, sometimes the queen of shadows, queen of the underworld, black time, or just the dark goddess. You've heard her story told through archetypal goddesses from around the world, including Persephone, Medusa, Lilith, Hecate. Isis, Bast, Inanna, Durga, Kali, and the basket woman of the forest from the Coast Salish legends. So she's no lightweight. She means business. She is fierce, passionate, and devouring. This is the woman who destroys in order to renew. She avenges to restore balance. She is the implacable one who feeds on old life so that new life may grow. She is the one who comes to us when we are overly attached and overly identified. She demands of us that we become ruthless about our integrity in our roles, relationships, possessions, identities, and values. And so because of that, she threatens our self-image, our achievements, our accumulations, and our ego. Sometimes she arrives in our lives riding on the back of trauma and trouble and heartbreak like a kind of visitation or apparition, as though the dark woman has come to take you on a journey to your depths. If we don't understand her when she comes, if we aren't aware of her power and recognize her gifts, then we can experience her as a feeling of fear, confusion, paralysis, and depression. Or we can be tempestuous, frenzied, out of control, manic, and grasping we can be shattered in despair and denial. Meanwhile, of course, while that's all happening, you're supposed to keep the lights on, keep the rent paid, keep the kids fed, shuttled here and there, keep supper on the table, as though your world isn't completely crumbling inside. And so you do, acting as though every fiber of your being isn't screaming enough, for fuck's sakes. But here's the thing about avoiding her, about the strategy so many of us adopt of doing as coping, of productivity as anesthetic. The more resistant we are to the dark woman's influence, the greater the force we have to create within ourselves in order to loosen our attachments. In other words, the situation that we're holding together, the white knuckle grip of control, will become so problematic that it slips through our fingers, or it goes supernova. And if you don't do it, if you don't let go, life will make you. Now, to really dive deeper into the dark woman archetype, I'd like to tell you a story, one with which many of you will be very familiar. It's called the Rape of Persephone. So this myth comes from the Hellenic time, roughly around 3000 BCE, before Common Era. And it's from the area basically around present-day Greece and Turkey. The main characters are Zeus, the supreme god of all gods, and his brother Hades. And it involves one of Zeus's lovers, Demeter, who was the goddess of the bountiful harvest, and their daughter, Persephone. This is the story of how Persephone came to be the majestic, venerable, and often dreaded queen of the underworld. So, the story begins as the signs of womanly beauty are beginning to shine through Persephone's childlike innocence. And one day, the adolescent goddess is walking with her mother, who's surveying the land and assessing her crops, and Persephone gets bored with agrarian problems, as teenagers do, and so she eventually wanders out of sight, picking Narcissus. And so she's gathering flowers, and Persephone unwittingly attracts the attention of Hades, who falls instantly in love. So I I won't and just, I want to point out that line, because I didn't write that line, unwittingly attracted attention, that's published somewhere. So it's like, um, it's like she made it happen, right? Like she didn't mean to, but she did unwittingly attract his attention, so her fault. If you want to know where rape culture comes from. <laughs> can I get a glass so I can have my water? Thank you. So, Uh, Anyways, Hades asks Zeus if he can take his niece down to the underworld and uh, make her his queen, and Zeus is like, "Sure, bro." (laughs) So, um, (laughs) so while Demeter's distracted and Persephone's, uh, you know, all alone, Hades rises up through a chasm in the earth and abducts her, and he takes her to his underworld kingdom to make her his queen. Or, as the title clearly states, rape her. So Demeter hears her daughter's screams and races to find her, but of course there's no sign of her because she's been swallowed up by the earth. And so, at first, she's consumed by grief and sorrow, forgetting all about her crops and the harvest, and she searches and searches. She searches to the ends of the earth, asking everyone, Have you seen Persephone? And through her investigation, Demeter discovers that Zeus gave permission to Hades to abduct Persephone and make her his wife, and Demeter is like fucking livid. So consumed by fury, she demonstrates her outrage by withholding her blessing from the earth, proclaiming that nothing on earth will grow until her daughter is returned to her. So droughts ensue, the earth lays barren, humankind faces a major famine, people are getting upset, So mortals and gods alike start petitioning Zeus to do something because everyone is terrified of the mourning mother, Demeter. Meanwhile, Persephone, in her dark and gloomy new home, misses her mother terribly. But another part of her kind of grows a little fond of being queen, even if it is of the underworld. So she takes up her role with some gusto and she starts to learn all the ways and means of power in the dark realms. And then she starts receiving visitor after visitor of desperate mortals and gods who need her help. And sometimes she obliges and sometimes she makes them work really hard for it. Back above ground, the months have dragged on and mankind is nearing the end of its rope, beginning to succumb to this new phenomenon of winter. And so everybody is begging Demeter to have mercy, but she won't. And so Zeus finally relents and sends Hermes, the messenger, down to fetch Persephone and bring her back to her mother. But before Persephone leaves, Hades tricks her and says, you know, you should really have something to eat before you go on your long trip. And he offers her some food, and so she eats three pomegranate seeds, and then presumably is full because she's a goddess. And so... (laughs) Persephone returns above ground and is joyfully reunited with her mother. And then Demeter's like, wait, tell me that in all those months underground you didn't eat anything. Mm -hmm. And Persephone confesses, well, just three pomegranate seeds. And Demeter's like, damn it, Hades. So because she has eaten the fruit from the underworld, Persephone is now cursed to return to it year after year for one month for each pomegranate seed that she has eaten. And every year during that time, Demeter falls into bitter mourning, and humankind experiences winter. Okay. So. In the telling of this story, Persephone is supposed to represent both the youthful, innocent, and joy and maiden aspect of woman. But as well, she becomes the more womanly self, who, with her innocence lost and her family attachments loosened, she can begin to claim her own knowledge and identity and power. Of course, only within the boundaries that a patriarchal, patriarchal gods have laid out for her. So as I mentioned, there's many stories of people getting special permission to venture down to the underworld, and it seems like Persephone is like always conveniently there. Like, it's always winter when shit goes down. And she's... <laughs> variously presented as like scheming, helpful, compassionate, vengeful. So she's depicted as this like kind of fickle character. You never know what you're gonna get. She's basically a convenient foil for whatever the story requires. And I think we can hear many echoes of the rape of Persephone in our culture today. But I don't wanna list them for you. I don't wanna give them any more airtime. And in fact, I think we should lay that story down now. I'd like to tell you a different story, one with which probably only a few of you will be very familiar. And it's called The Myth of Demeter and Persephone. This is an older story that comes from pre-Hellenic Greece, roughly roughly about 3,000 to 7,000 BCE. And it is likely that it has its roots going back as far as 10,000 BCE. And many scholars believe it's probably closer to 23,000 the Paleolithic age. Regardless, it's a much older story. Once upon a time, there lived a goddess of agriculture who inspired people all over the known world to plant seeds and grow gardens full of fruits and vegetables and flowers and groves of trees. This goddess, whose name was Demeter, had a daughter named Persephone, whom she loved more than anyone and anything in the world. Now because the land had a mild climate, there was no winter, and so the natural cycles of planting and harvesting went on all year. And so several times a year, for days at a time, Demeter would descend under the ground and walk arm in arm with her sister goddesses, Hera, who colored the flowers, Aphrodite, who cared for the herbs and kitchen gardens, and Hera, or Hestia, who loved every single plant, even the ugly and stubby ones. And from underground, the goddesses encouraged the seeds and roots to sprout and grow. And sometimes Persephone went with them. So one day Persephone turns to her mother and says, Mom, sometimes when we're walking under the ground, I hear the spirits of the dead moaning and crying. They tell me they're sad and lonely and restless. And lots of times they seem very confused about their state, like they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing down there. And I hear that sometimes even mortals can see the dead hiding out in shadows and at nighttime. So Demeter says, I hear where you're going with this, and I respect that, Uh, but that's not our task. We're in charge of plant life. There are other goddesses and gods who are in charge of life and death among mortals, um, so that's not our job. Our job is to encourage fertility and agriculture and growth. Now, don't get me wrong, I I know all about the suffering of the dead, because when mortals die, they return to the earth, to my womb. But it is our job to feed the living. But Persephone is a smart girl, and she's a compassionate girl. And she's like, Mom, we can't just leave them there to suffer. Like, we have to tell them what's what, or they'll just get stuck down there in a pit of despair, never knowing that they could be resurrected to new life. So, what? I have told the dead that I will come and comfort them. I will tell them that their families still remember them. I'll give them ceremony and ritual to cheer them up. And I'll teach them how they can be born again into new lives. So it took a lengthy and somewhat heated conversation, but Demeter finally conceded that obviously the girl had found her calling. So, all right, daughter, she says. I can't stop you from going, but I will miss you like crazy. I will be so sad that I don't think I'll be able to walk under the ground and encourage the seeds and roots to grow. Instead, I'll be keeping vigil for you. I'll be doing ceremony and ritual for you. And I'll be doing nothing but thinking about you until you return. Go with my blessing. And so Persephone's like, pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip. And so (laughs) (laughs) Demeter gives her daughter a bouquet of poppies, narcissus, and wheat to remember her by. And she also gives Persephone a bowl of pomegranate seeds as an offering of food for the dead. Demeter opens a door to the underworld through a chasm in the earth, gives her daughter a torch to illuminate the darkness, and Persephone walks down a flight of stairs that seems endless. When she arrives in the underworld, she gives her flowers and wheat to the spirits of the dead. She listens to them and hugs them. She tells them all about the mysteries of death and rebirth. And after she's taught them all about the mysteries, she initiates them by squeezing the pomegranate seeds between her fingers. And one at a time, she calls forth the dead and marks their forehead with red juice, saying, you have waxed into the fullness of life and waned into its darkness. May you be renewed again in wisdom and tranquility." Meanwhile above ground, Demeter is keeping vigil for her daughter, and she's moping. And so she takes to her bed, and she neglects the land. And she declines invitations to walk with her sister goddesses. And they don't want to disrespect her vigil, so in solidarity, they cease going underground as well. The land grows cold and dark and barren, Winter comes, but Demeter doesn't care, because she fears she may never see her daughter again. And when she does leave her bed, it's only to search the cracks and crevices of the earth, looking for signs of her daughter's return. One day, she sees a circle of crocuses popping out of the barren, snowy ground. And unable to resist their beauty, she leans in, and as she does, the flowers whisper to her, Persephone! And Demeter leaps up, and she runs through the fields calling to the people and into the forest waving to the dormant trees and shouting to the hungry animals, Persephone returns! Persephone returns! And with every footfall, the earth is stirred by Demeter's joy, and new life bursts forth. And when Persephone finally ascends from the dark chasm, mother and daughter embrace, and mortals everywhere see the miracles of Persephone's service and Demeter's bliss, and all rejoice in new life. And each winter, all the people and plants and animals join Demeter in waiting through the bleak season of her daughter's absence, and each spring, they are renewed again by the signs of Persephone's return. (laughs) Yay. <laughs> My daughter is years from leaving home, but that story gets me every time. So, so why am I telling you this myth, and why am I retelling you this myth? Well, because in this great interview with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth, Joseph Campbell said, myths are clues to the spiritual potentialities of human life. So these are stories we carry in our collective unconscious, and he, he sort of talks about all the ways that myth has helped humankind's development. So over millennia, it's built civilizations, it's informed religions, it's really shaped the human psyche. But he says they aren't important because of that. They're important because when a myth catches you, it can become a life-vivifying force that resonates with our innermost being. It is through myth that we remember what it feels like to be truly alive. And if we don't find a myth that catches us and can teach us how to be really alive, then we have to figure it all out on our own, and that can be a lonely, desolate, tiring struggle. And I'm retelling the myth because I think it matters how we tell the story. So in these two versions of the myth, the same story is being told. The maiden, representing life and youth, must go down to the underworld, representing the mysteries of death and resurrection. And in so doing, she invokes knowledge, which provokes winter, or the long dark night of the soul. She is finally able to escape the underworld, but she's destined to return to it again and again because once you know the mystery, you can't unknow. But what happens when you've been living a myth that doesn't seem quite right for you, that has been authored to paint you in an unflattering light, like the first version I told? Well, now you're in a lonely, desolate, tiring struggle in someone else's myth. But it doesn't have to be that way. I believe the theft of our guiding stories as women is one of the factors when we as women find our inner worlds constantly at odds with the outer world. I believe it contributes to our doubting of our intuition and questioning of our own sanity. I believe it's one of the reasons when, in order to survive, we find ourselves conforming to a world that doesn't feel right to our innermost being. And the parallel I see as a spiritual guide and a clinical hypnotherapist is this. Both the power of the dark woman archetype and the power of the subconscious, both personal and collective, have been distorted. In the same way that the dark woman has become demonized and feared, the subconscious suffers a similar representation as something murky, confusing, and sometimes untrustworthy. Even just think of the word subconscious, sub meaning beneath or less than as in less than the conscious mind. But the dark woman archetype is actually a protective force. It's a facet of our virtuous self battling for what's right. And the subconscious mind, its main goal is to protect you. Our mind might go about it in problematic ways, but the goal is always simple, to avoid inner conflict. So we use repression, rationalization, projection, and all kinds of things to protect ourselves. And these defense mechanisms are unconscious, they're natural, and they're rooted in our need for just a higher self-esteem. But, personally and collectively, they become unhealthy and destructive if we don't learn to build a greater capacity to cope with discomfort. And we all know how this works from our own personal healing journeys. We know the importance of bringing subconscious fears into the light so we can stop fucking around and just get on with the show. Similarly, we need not fear the dark woman archetype whose role is ultimately one of fierce protectress. And when we are immersed in dark woman energy, Neither should we concern ourselves when others project their feelings of discomfort onto us, which will definitely happen. (laughs) So instead, I suggest we look at relating to the dark woman energy as learning to locate ourselves in the greater cycles of our lives so we can discern when to yield to feedback and cooperation and when it's dark woman time. When it's time to become unyielding in the face of necessary change, when it's time to become unyielding in the face of violations that go against our values, become unyielding in the face of that which we can no longer countenance because there's just not enough time for our own bullshit. We've got work to do. So when, where, and how does the dark woman show up in our lives? No doubt about it, she can sneak up on us and show up through trauma, loss, debt, denial, death, disease, all kinds of discord. But there are five life cycle moments when she is reliably available to us, and if we can recognize them and seize upon them as opportunities, we're ahead of the game. So the first is during the dark moon phase of every lunar cycle, which is about three days leading up to the new moon. Also during menstruation, when our bodies are shedding, after menopause, when we become she who holds her wisdom inside, each year in the winter time, and also each year in the month prior to our birthday, because that's when we have a greater awareness of our age and mortality, and also the diminishment of our vitality and like, importance and status in society, which is exactly where I am at this moment, incidentally, my birthday's next month, and I will tell you, I have been living full on in the vice grip of this dark woman energy. Uh, yeah. uh, but I've also been studying her quite intensively in many areas of my life since uh, last year when I turned 40. So I just want to summarize the four phases of the moon within my understanding and my tradition, just so we're all on the same page, and you may have a different understanding. And just be bloody girls, okay. So new moon, we plant the seeds of intention the time for ideation and dreaming. Full moon, we give that intention form. We initiate, we launch, we go live. Waning moon, we are living out that intention in form. And dark moon, when the form has served its purpose, it's time to let go and break up the old form. So the last period of any major cycle is the dark moon phase, when the dark woman energy is most powerful. And you already know the dark woman very well. You met her every winter when you got depressed for no particular reason. You met her that time you got deathly ill. When that person, your person, died. When the last child left home. When you declared bankruptcy. When you packed up all his shit and had it delivered to his parents' garage. (laughs) <laughs> when you quit drinking, when you quit that shitty job, when you stayed at that shitty job and you kept speaking up and you kept fucking with their shit until everything changed, nobody recognized the place anymore. And when she came to you and you finally let her make you over, you were luminous. You were a force of nature and in so many ways at your best. And with so much to be proud of. Now you say oh that's in the past. Now when she comes to you your hospitality disappears. Now she comes to you and she says there's works to do and you're busy. Now she comes to you and maybe she's working through another woman who's taking up space and doing her thing her way and you say you cut her down, verbally or energetically, you cut her out, you withdraw, you leave her hanging there. Hmm. Wow. In my observation, the dark woman has two things to say about that. In the first case, grow up as if you can just say to the dark woman, this isn't really a good fit for me right now, it's not really a good time, really busy doing something else important. The dark woman has come for you. Are you ready or not? And you better say ready. (laughs) And in the second case, if she shows up in someone else whose way of being is intimidating to you, is triggering you, is irritating you, remember she is you. You are seeing the dark side of your own moon. She, that generous woman, is living that out for you. And you're going to be ungenerous. What would it be like if we actually did assume the best of each other? Wouldn't you, in your own dark moon phase, like to be cut a little bit of fucking slack? Wouldn't you like a little support? Wouldn't you like to know you weren't alone? What might happen in ourselves and our world if we follow the dark woman's lead, if we place a higher virtue on the values of the shadow, If we reclaim and empower the dark parts of ourselves, I'll tell you what would happen. We would get actually important shit done. So why is the dark woman so feared and denied? I have some ideas. So one reason is because she is animated by grief and rage. But in her version of the story, grief and rage are featured as two powerful forms of love. Grief to her means, I am utterly devastated by the loss of something I love. Rage to her means, I am utterly unable and unwilling to abide another fucking violation against something I love. So we're afraid because we know that when the dark woman comes into our life, to illuminate what's real for us, there's a good chance we're going to be completely disillusioned with our life and the world. And then what? Well, I'll tell you what. Hopefully, that's when grief in her mercy will bring a river of tears to wash away what is causing your grief. Because as Martine Prechtel says, grief is a form of praise, When we grieve, we give energy to that which we love. It's like singing a hymn to the beloved. And as Naomi Nishihab Nye says in her poem, before you can know kindness as the the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And then after grief, hopefully, comes fury, which we're afraid of for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that we've never learned how to do rage. Now notice, and this is super fucking important for all the Law of Attraction people, notice I'm not talking about run-of-the-mill anger here. That's over there at the fear end of the spectrum. We get it. But we're on the love end of the spectrum, right out there at the passionate edge. And we know how to do love, right? We know how intense passion can be, right? Say yes. Yes. (laughs) We're okay with losing our minds in the name of love, right? Yes. Well, has your tender heart been broken by the violence you see in the world? Yes. Has your love for the world been offended by its destruction? Yes. Yes. Has your spirit been crushed by the heartless enforcement of an oppressive system that abuses and kills people? Yes. Yes. Then you are a warrior. You are a soldier of love. And fuck this shit. And yes. sorry, not sorry, but sometimes rage is the only humane response. Fury can be fueled. Fury can be fuel when we ask ourselves, what lies at the farthest reaches of our human imagination? In the long dark night with nothing left to lose, we can plant the seeds for that dream. We can condition the soil for that dream, because remember that after the dark moon time comes the new moon time. Now, I know that some of you are still super uncomfortable with rage. And I know that some of you are uncomfortable with this notion of a loud, demanding, judgmental, and sometimes hostile goddess who's wreaking havoc in our lives, tearing our social fabric, causing disharmony, and just generally making people feel bad. And you know where I see a similar reaction to that come up a lot? In discussions about racism. You've seen it on Facebook. When somebody very directly calls out racism and white supremacy, especially if the target is like a really nice, well-intentioned liberal white person. If you haven't noticed this, watch for this. Progressive liberals, they will jump in and fight for the right to racial comfort. And they will insist on respectful and polite dialogue. And they'll put in so much time and energy and words, God, so many words, to argue for the right to maintain their emotional comfort in discussions about race. And they'll say stuff like, you know, calling out only alienates people. And shaming shuts down conversation and it just turns off white people and you're not succeeding in eliminating racism. You have to call in and meet people where they're at and educate them and bring them along a ladder of awareness to a place of higher consciousness. Which sounds good, right? But remember your own subconscious mind? Think about your own life. Have you ever held a deep unconscious belief that required a complete transformation that didn't involve a measure of pain and discomfort? Or were all of your profound transformations, like, super polite and respectful? <laughs> Honestly, was education ever really adequate for the transformation you needed to achieve? Like, did somebody ever just say to you, of course you're lovable, here's all your lovable qualities, and you're like, oh my god, I forgot, and your self-esteem just, like, laddered right on up, <laughs> No, it was taxing, it was emotionally grueling. You spun your wheels. You thought other people were no at all assholes. You thought everything they were saying applied to everyone else and not to you. You needed a whole bunch of experiences. Some of them were gentle and opening, and some of them were fucking humiliating and excruciating. So those progressives demanding to be comfortable in the most fraught of social discourse are right. Calling out doesn't work on its own just as peaceful protest and civic dialogue and education don't work on their own. We've been educating and raising consciousness about racism and oppression for how long now? And so, the reality is there is no one strategy that works, we need them all. What is required for true and deep transformation is a broad spectrum of approach that straddles both peace and pain. So yes. There are other times when gentle energy is more appropriate, but the dark woman is not here for your fucking bullshit. And if you don't embrace and learn to understand the messages and the gifts of the dark, then we are all destined or cursed to just project it all over everyone else. Now, there's a historical reason that we fear the dark woman, And it's related to the same reasons that we fear dark nights, dark places, even people whose skin is darker than ourselves. And this starts around 7,000 to 3,000 BCE in the area of the Fertile Crescent, so it's still Greece and Turkey, but now it wraps and swings all the way down around through like Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. And this is from the transition time between the agrarian matristic Cultures and the tribal patriarchal societies. Now, when I say matristic, I do not mean goddess worshiping. I mean it in sort of a more ethnographic kind of way, which means that it's roughly an egalitarian society and women can be active in public life beside their brothers. And when I say patriarchy, I am not talking about men. I'm talking about an interlocking social and political system that says, Masculinity in males are inherently dominating and holds them up as superior, endowed with a right to rule, and this is enforced through violence, both physical and psychological. But as Bell hooks says, patriarchy has no gender, and it is enforced, policed and normalized by both men and women. And in fact When I use the word patriarchy, I'm using it like Bell Hooks uses it, which is to describe imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. That's what I'm talking about. So this era is a time of lunar worship and primary female deities. There there were male gods, too. But what humans would have noticed up to that point was that women could shed their blood every month and not die, pretty magical. But not only that, they could like randomly bring forth more humans. And not only could they replicate themselves, they could also create males. (laughs) So it was pretty miraculous, and there's just no question that to the ancient mind, females were completely identified with the great mystery and magic. And the parallels between females and the fertility cycles of the Earth and the reliable return of the moon were undeniable. So at this time, women held powerful positions in society as teachers, priestesses, oracles, medicine people, and also midwives of both birth and death. And the dark goddess was admired, respected, and beloved. She was a comforting presence in times of great importance and transition, because she was experienced and knowledgeable. But what happens in this time period is there's several waves of invasions by these warrior tribes from Northern Europe and the Central Asian steppe, and they worship solar gods. These were not agrarian people with the same concerns about fertility cycles of the earth. So their gods were thunder hurlers, and they believed in linear time as opposed to cyclical time. They didn't believe in rebirth and regeneration. So there was no need to be guided from death into rebirth. And they believed that after death, there was either punishment or reward, and it's pretty tricky to be a member of a war-mongering tribal society and still remain so pure that you can earn reward. So, the dark moon phase of our lives, that time of aging and elderhood, became regarded as like the beginning of the end, after which you had a really good chance of experiencing everlasting pain and suffering. Which is one of the reasons, I think, why nowadays in our culture, the farther we drift away from youth and beauty, the less anyone wants to do with us miserable reminders of everlasting pain and suffering. And so it's surmised that around this time, women also began to make the link between mating and birth because prior to that, it was not obvious at all that men had anything to do with this. But (laughs) by then, they had been domesticating livestock for so long, and so they were starting to notice that connection through the cattle. And so that mystery solved, combined with the invasions of the solar gods, meant that the status of women was now diminished, and also the perceived sacredness and spiritual power of women, of the earth, and of death were beginning to dissolve. And so the dark woman was exiled, banished to the shadow of society. And as Jung says, we know that whatever's banished to the shadow becomes repressed and distorted. So take, for example, the dark woman's sexuality. During the matristic period, it was totally common to go to the temple and receive sacred sexual rites from the priestesses, who were considered handmaidens of the dark dark goddess. But under the new regime, this sacred sexuality, which had been understood to have magical healing and spiritual power, became demonized. Women's sexuality became offensive, an insult to power for which she should be shamed and persecuted and rape became a weapon of war. And so the dark goddesses are distorted into these malefic characters, and the other lighter lunar goddesses are married off or enslaved to the invading gods. And this is why Zeus has so many wives. And this is also why so many of them, like his primary wife Hera, retain this bitter, rebellious quality because they once were queens and they refused to submit. So we can see the impacts of this major transition all around us today, but I'd like to restate that this isn't simply the result of men. Notice how many systems are interwoven here, from religion to civics to geopolitics. And notice how today, men also suffered different impacts under patriarchy, not the least of which is the withholding of the mysteries of the dark goddess and the shame, ridicule, rejection, and exclusion they reap when attempting to know her. So what is the purpose of the dark woman in our lives today? The dark woman helps us to remember ourselves, and what it is to really be alive. She comes through discovery or recovery, but either way, she reanimates our original nature. (laughs) She represents a sense of embeddedness of our whole self into the cosmos, a sense of belonging to our own sacredness. She reminds us of immanence. The divine indwelling in all things in the natural world, including ourselves, which is why her motto is I come from myself, because she is one in herself. Her gifts are vision, divination, active sexuality, release, redemption, regeneration, and ardent devotion to one's own path. She helps us be with ourselves when we're hurting and be with others when they're hurting. And in our spiritual practice, she helps us learn to be comfortable with ambiguity and otherness in the sense of the other than human (coughs) realms. But I think more importantly, she helps us become comfortable with social otherness. In other words, she helps us become comfortable in our own skin so we can be comfortable with everyone else's And she has this exciting outlaw aspect to her that's totally unfettered by good girl restraint. So personally, I admire her because she has learned to integrate and assert all parts of herself. She takes initiative at a minimum, and she calls revolution if necessary. So, how is it that she's so unconcerned by what others think, you might ask? How is it that she's so unburdened by a sense of self-preservation? You might be thinking, well, she sounds like kind of a bitch, and that might be okay for some people, but I couldn't do that. Yes, you can, and I'll tell you how. Because she is so devoted to very specific values, She knows are beyond her and bigger than her and eternal. The dark woman can move through the world like she simultaneously got no fucks and all the fucks. She can afford to be impersonal and not always merciful in carrying out her will because what she loves and what she values more than anything in the world are truth, freedom, justice, and healing. So truth, not only does the dark woman have an insatiable need to know the truth, she also is uncompromising in her truthfulness, which is uncomfortable at family holidays. (laughs) But it also means that you can trust her. You can trust her. And her kind of truth means that she's more than just keeping people's secrets and never telling a lie. It means that she is sincere, especially in her desire to be of service and contribution. And her form of truth pulls right up alongside her grief and rage, and she has the wisdom to ask the question, how am I contributing to the problem that upsets me? Freedom. Well, the dark woman has a very frank disregard for the opinion of other people. Frankly, she doesn't give a shit if you like her. And what could be freer than that? But also, the dark woman is so clear on her values that she is free to fuck up. She gives herself permission to take action, even if she doesn't know what she's doing, and even if she knows she's probably not the right person. Because fucking up will not stop her. She is so committed to improving, to learning, doing better, and getting good shit done. Therefore, she diligently practices two miraculously liberating skills. And the first one is, she knows how to apologize really well with sincerity and humility. And the second is, she knows when to apologize and when she's being used as a stand-in for someone else's unresolved issues. Now I know you're wondering, how does she know that? (laughs) How does she discern the difference? There's no formula, but here's a hint. She studies. She studies human behavior, she studies love, she studies pain and privilege and intersectionality and oppression, reconciliation, communication. She just studies all the things and figures it the fuck out to the best of her ability. Because she is at home in the underworld, she looks for root causes to unearth the truth. Justice. The dark woman has a cellular level inability to passively witness violation of any sort. Which doesn't mean that she's always like running off vigilante style into dangerous situations, but it does often mean that she's running off her mouth. So, she throws shade very accurately and precisely like the wrathful Dakinis, those wild, untamed, demigod characters, those women from Tibetan Buddhism. But again, I'm actually referring to their even earlier incarnations, the ones that predate organized religion. In even earlier times, they were half woman, half animal, and their role was to metabolize poison. They would dance and feast on the painful negativity of their own and the community in order to transform it. They take the poison of rage and cook it down into the tonic of wrath, wrath which is fierce protection of life. They are not unruly demons. They are servants and protectors of the community. And they're famous confronters of tyranny. And Caroline Casey told me a legend of the wild and wrathful Dakinis sitting at the back of the room of a very important spiritual teacher's lecture. And they're laughing and weeping and causing a huge ruckus. And the very important spiritual teacher stops and says, why are you laughing and weeping at my lecture? And they say, we're laughing because you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And we're weeping that anyone would listen to you in the first place. And they're so truthful and liberated that even the arrogant spiritual teacher recognizes their wisdom and says, you're right. I'm a fraud and I want to be free instead. Please show me how. Healing, so the etymology, as you know, the word to heal means to make whole. It does not mean to make perfect. And this is when an empowering dark goddess from India can be instructive, Akilanda. And her name means she who is never not broken. In other words, she's the always broken goddess. She is the one who says that when you are shattered, you have a shining moment of choice, a choice to be remade differently next time. You'll still be the sum of a million bits of shrapnel, but you get to choose how you come back to yourself. The dark woman is not afraid to love the whole horror and brilliance of experience. She loves disharmony so hard it comes back into harmony. She does whatever she can and whatever she has to in order to authenticate, regenerate, and nurture an honest, free, and just world. And I was working with a client this week, and he said, okay, everything you're telling me about the dark moon time and these four virtues are totally resonating with me, but what do I do? How do I do those four things when I'm in the dark? Here's my advice. Pick the one that resonates least and study it. That is your blind spot. That is what you need to learn to see in the dark. And then you've got to summon the courage to relinquish the anesthetics of privilege and productivity and anything else you've been using to keep yourself safe. And then you've got to shore up enough self-love, a surplus overflowing amount of self-love so that you can stand the slings and arrows of your own people as they take aim and project their fear and discomfort onto you. You've got to open yourself up to kinship in unfamiliar quarters. Because I can tell you from experience that conviction is fucking lonely. And you know what helps? Love helps sisterhood helps, but know this, the people you have around you now may not be able to go the distance with you. They may not be equipped to run your marathon, and that's okay. It may be more like a relay race, where you lead them to their upper limit and they spin out, and that's okay, because there will be more people waiting there to rally with you, trust me. Do not believe the stories about strangers unless they are the very old stories about opening up to the beautiful mystery of otherness. Open yourself up to kinship in unfamiliar quarters because there are lonely, tired, desolate people waiting there for you. I was watching an excellent interview with Gloria Steinem and she said the most dangerous time for a woman in an abusive relationship, the time she's most likely to die, is right before or after she leaves, because she's escaping control. And right now in our history, we're coming to a critical and dangerous time in our work to dismantle old forms. But we must reclaim and favor the power of the dark moon phase in both our personal and cultural cycles. There will be a backlash against change, but we should be wise and not stop because we can all feel that it's time. And the mystic in in me loves that this feeling of impatience, this feeling of it being, we need to get rid of these worn-out forms is corroborated by astrologers. And as you know, astrology is a wonderful tool for perceiving synchronicity. And perceiving synchronicity helps us unite the outer world of phenomenon with the inner world of meaning. And through that unity, it's easier for us to move towards individuation, which Carl Jung would describe as just the urge towards integration and wholeness, which, remember, is the dark woman's jam, right? So astrologers have noticed a 26,000-year cycle, like the platonic year. So you've probably heard things like the age of Aquarius. That's just one sort of segment of that 26,000-year cycle. And coincidentally, if you take the model of a moon phase cycle, And you place its start at about 23,000 BCE, some of the earliest evidence of the age of the goddess. And here we are today in 2016. That's a span of 25,000 years. So it makes sense that for the past several thousand years of patriarchal rule, we've been in that withdrawn, difficult, dark, confused, dark moon phase of the goddess. Which would mean that on a cosmic level, We're almost out of that cycle. We're emerging, and now it's on. It's time. It's time to recover our stolen stories. We'll still be living with a mismatched cultural myth for a while, but we don't need to be so deeply involved in it anymore. It's time to be generous and amplify women who claim power, even if they aren't perfect at it. It's time to learn to hold our own center, And notice when we're projecting, when we're equating decisiveness in a woman with being power-hungry. Notice when we're confusing being assertive with being unkind. And especially notice how we've been groomed to turn away and shrink from our own soul-level responsibility, to fight for a cause, even if it's not our own. Marina Gambutis herself was the inspiration for this whole speech. She was an amazingly accomplished linguist, ethnographer, and archaeologist. She was targeted and discredited at the end of an illustrious career on her deathbed, with a pile-on backlash that subsequently led to her erasure from academia, where she once had been preeminent. She herself predicted right before she died in the 1990s that it would be about 35 more years before her work would be restored and her observations, insights, and conclusions would be re-accepted by the field. We're about halfway to acceptance by her timeline, and I look around at our culture today, and I see young girls who know what the word feminism and consent mean before they even enter their teens. I see young women changing the tone and topic of public discourse from academia to social media. I see women and men working together to dismantle misogyny. I see alliances of nations standing up against governments to protect water and the earth. I see children I see children taking a knee before their football games to protest police brutality and racial injustice. I see everyday people laughing and weeping at this fucking world, and they're lighting their torches, and they're asking us to follow them on this grueling descent. And I think that the dark woman knowing this inside Gambutis as she lay dying was probably bang on in her prediction because no doubt the dark woman isn't going to wait for us much longer because there comes a time for Kali. Without her, we won't leave the abusive relationship. There comes a time for Persephone, because without her, we won't know how to help our parents or our partners die well. Without Demeter, we can't prepare our children to leave us. Without Durga, we condemn our daughters to the control of the male gaze. And without the wrathful Dakini's, power runs amok. The dark woman wants you to know the extent of your reach. She wants to liberate you with her knowledge and comfort you with her experience. And she wants to love you so hard and bring a delightfulness of being to your dark places. She is your strength and your ally and your champion. I suggest that you unleash the dark woman and celebrate her glory as a wise guide and teacher as an exciting agitator, and as a redeeming force in your life. And if you do, I promise you will never be that fearful, lonely, desolate, and tired again. I'd like to leave you with a poem by Hafez: The small man builds prisons for everyone he meets but the wise woman ducks under the moon and tosses keys to all the beautiful and rowdy prisoners. There you go. I even know what I'm about to say, and I get choked up a bit listening to that. If this has really resonated with you and you feel as though there's something surfacing, something emerging, or something that you need to descend into and engage with in terms of this dark woman archetype, then I'd highly recommend that you kind of bookend some time for a deep dive because, you know, grief and rage and all of those virtues, man, they make things pretty unpredictable in your life. So I think this is one of those times when um, enlisting the assistance of an experienced guide and going on retreat is really justified. So if you're interested in going on retreat with me again, just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And you can just fill out that new client application form and let me know if that's actually a way you'd like to work with me. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being open-hearted. And to all of my listeners who are dwelling in dark and lonely places. I'm with (laughs) you. I hear you. I know you're out there. And Together we're strong. So thanks again for spending time with me today. I'll see you next time. Take care.